If you're enjoying today's podcast, please join Father James Martin and Jamie Marisotis for a discussion on human work, spirituality, and empathy during their virtual live event, Finding Spiritual Meaning in Human Work, on February 14th. Sign up at luminafoundation.org slash events. Welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of American Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. Good to be with you, Ashley, and I'm feeling pretty good because I got today's Wordle in only three guesses. (laughs) You also did it at 2 a.m., I think, I saw on Twitter, which I can't really blame you for because I was scrolling through Twitter at 4 (laughs) a.m., I would like to point out when you that you did not like my tweet. At, uh, announcing I thought it would be kind of weird store. if I liked it at four a.m. Yep, that's true. That's true. But uh, I'm I wanted to get a jump on the day. Turns out everybody got today's in like three. So mm, I haven't done it yet. So no spoilers. All right, I won't. What are we doing today? Today in Signs of the Times, we have a preview of the upcoming beatification of Rotilio Grande. He was a Jesuit priest and a martyr from El Salvador. And then we have something a little bit different. We discuss an, an Ask Amy column that talks about Catholic weddings and what the involvement of parents should be. Yeah, looking forward to that. And then we talk with Bishop Eusebio Elizondo, who is an auxiliary bishop for the Archdiocese of Seattle. And he served as the quote-unquote devil's advocate in the Catholic Church's canonization process. It's well known that for someone to become a saint in the Catholic Church or to get beatified, they have to have, uh, you know, quote-unquote, performed some miracles. The question is, though, how, how do you verify what an actual miracle is? It turns out there's this fascinating process. Yeah, the Catholic Church takes it very seriously. They do not want any um, any fake fake miracles slipping through the cracks. So they they involve scientists, they involve medical professionals, and then they have someone on you know who's part of the church who plays the devil advocate and like asks hard questions and and makes sure that there's no possible natural explanation for when a miraculous healing happens. Um, so it's a really interesting conversation. Uh, I was, the thing I really wanted to know and which uh, Bishop Elizondo had a great answer for is like, why are all the miracles medical healings? We just we just had the uh, miracle of turning water into wine in last week's gospel. And, and you don't see any food miracles this day. So yeah. if you have the same question, stick around for that conversation. But first, what's on tap this week? Well, uh, it's been alluded to a few times in the show so far. Um, we're, we're drinking wine, um, both in honor of the wedding at Cana, um, <laughs> as you mentioned, Ashley, the great food miracle, um, but also uh, in honor of yes. weddings. We're going to talk about some weddings and wine at them. And so uh, cheers to all, all, all married couples that got married this past cheers. weekend. I had some friends get married this past weekend. So to Andrew and Lowe. And now we have Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. What's our first story, Zach? So this weekend, we're about to have a new member join the beatified ranks of the Catholic Church. Uh, Father Rutilio Grande and two of his lay companions will be beatified in El Salvador this weekend. So some context if you aren't familiar with uh, Rutilio Grande. Uh, He was killed in the lead up to the Civil War in El El Salvador, which raged from 1979 to 1992 and was fought between the military junta and paramilitary groups on one side and 
a coalition of left-wing guerrilla forces on the other side. And a number of Catholic priests, religious, and lay activists were, were targeted by government death squads during this period. Yeah, and I should be said that the United States helped uh, train and fund some of that, quick aside. Um, but the most famous target of the, these violent government death squads and paramilitary groups was Archbishop Oscar Romero, uh, who was sort of famously assassinated while saying mass in 1980. And he's now, he's been canonized. But the first priest killed in the lead up to the Civil War was Father Rutilio Grande. He was murdered along with two parishioners on March 12, 1977. He was an outspoken advocate for the rural poor and land reform and was dedicated to raising the social consciousness of lay people in the country. Right. And his death actually had a, a, an immediate effect. He was murdered less than a month after Oscar Romero had been stalled in archbishop. And before that time, Oscar Romero had been a little bit more cautious in his criticisms of the government. But the death of his friend Rutilio really you know, radicalized him in some sense. And he started being really outspoken against the poverty and violence that was plaguing his country. And and it was his outspokenness that uh, eventually led to his assassination. So when you consider like, why, so why is this beatification significant? A couple of reasons. Grande, along with Oscar Romero, demonstrates a broadening of who the Catholic Church considers to be a Martyr. Traditionally, to be considered a martyr, you had to be killed for like defending doctrinal truths or like out of like pure hatred for something you believed um, that was a doctrine or a dogma of the faith. And that started to shift a little bit because it's not that Rutilio Grande and Oscar Romero and other people like it were, were killed because of something they believe, but more what they were doing because of their beliefs, right? So they were standing with the poor because of their Christian faith. And because of that, they were targeted by these death squads. Right. So significant day for the church. It's the beatification is happening again uh, this Saturday, January 22nd. And America Magazine has been has been covering this this process uh, all week and will continue to do so. So you can head over to americamagazine.org for articles, videos and more on Rutilio Grande. And as part of that coverage, our friends over at Inside the Vatican have been working hard on a, a new deep dive into the beatification of Rutilio Grande. You can listen to that whole thing over there in the Inside the Vatican feed. So here's a little teaser from that episode. In the late 1970s, social and political tensions in El Salvador erupted into a brutal civil war. Archbishop Oscar Romero was shot while celebrating mass in San Salvador. He had been speaking out against the economic injustices in his country and proclaiming an empowered reading of the Gospels that resonated with the suffering people. It not only challenged the political powers of the day, but the religious status quo. Romero became a household name, not just in his home country, but throughout the world. He was lifted up as a martyr, a champion for social justice, and an icon of liberation theology. In 2018, Pope Francis canonized him a saint. But Romero was not the first Catholic priest to be killed for standing in solidarity with the poor. Just three years earlier, driving on a rural, dusty road between Aguilares and El Paisnal, a Jesuit priest named Rutilio Grande was shot and killed by El Salvador's government security forces. I don't know myself why. He is a lesser known figure, but his story is a remarkable and beautiful story, and it deserves to be told. And we're back. That was Inside the Vatican. Again, head over to their feed to listen to that whole deep dive. It's really excellent. Um, but for now, we're returning to Signs of the Times. What's our next story, Ashley? 
Well, now for something completely different. <laughs> um, yes. <laughs> it, was, it was a kind of slow week for, for Catholic news, and but we did see this very interesting um, Ask Amy column. Uh, it, it, <laughs> so we'll, we're kind of going to break it down for you and then, you know, give some of our reactions and discuss the questions it raises. So it's written by a future mother-in-law, and she's a church-going Christian whose daughter just got engaged to a Catholic, and they're planning on having a Catholic wedding, and mother-in-law is not happy about this. No, and so she writes in to uh, the Ask Amy column, which I, I've not really read a ton, but oh, a- Amy I'm Dickinson a is column, a- I'm advice column junkie. I've been reading these <laughs> since like sixth grade. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, uh, evidently, unbeknownst to me, but uh, that's my own ignorance, uh, Amy Dickinson is a widely syndicated advice column. Um, so uh, this mother-in-law decided or she was you know, just going to put her dirty laundry out for the country to see. Um, she says she didn't expect her daughter to have a wedding in her church, which she describes as a, quote, conservative Christian church. But she said she is, quote, totally against it in a Catholic church. She complains that the future groom's family doesn't go to mass regularly and that in the past her daughters described Catholic weddings as, quote, too ritualistic, which is, I think, a nice way of saying they're too long. <laughs> uh, and on top of all that, mother-in-law is very upset that they plan to serve alcohol at the reception because this is something that her conservative family, uh, they, they do not drink. So that's yeah. just another strike against Catholics is our pension for drinking wine. Yes. Uh, she does uh, add to the stirring of the pot uh, by saying that she's paying a lot for the wedding. And so she says, asks, uh, Amy, do I have to pay for the alcohol? And can I refuse to pay for the wedding if it ha- happens in a Catholic church? Uh, c- coming out swinging. And Amy, <laughs> yes. Amy swings right back. Yes. So for the first easier question, does she have to pay for alcohol? Amy's answer is no, you do not need to pay for the alcohol if that's something you object to. But she does not hold back in calling out this letter writer's uh, anti-Catholic prejudice. Uh, she says, your views and comments regarding a Catholic wedding are blatantly prejudiced as well as unkind. She said, this wedding is not about you. Don't interfere. And that mother-in-law owes the daughter and fiance an apology. So I, I don't know. I just thought this advice column raised uh, a bunch of interesting questions, uh, particularly this idea of like, who is the wedding for? Like on the one hand, I'm, I'm obviously I agree with Amy in that it does seem like she's got some prejudice against the Catholic Church. Uh, and, you know, the thought of having it inside of one is, you know, for that to be so abhorrent to her. That's um, the way she put it came across as pretty offensive. You know, you could be uncomfortable with it or nervous about it, whatever. But this idea of like, who is this wedding about? You know, Amy says it's not about you as the mother-in-law or as the mom. It's about the bride and the groom, which I, I feel like is is like true in, in some sense, but also not really true at all. And this is, I think, where it's a little unpopular to hear. But I mean, it's it's about the bride and the groom, but it is also about all the people that are going to like be around you and support you throughout your marriage. Right. As someone who has not been married, but who has participated in family members' weddings, I very much think it's not just about the bride and groom. <laughs> um, but and but the, then the question is, okay, so what does that what does that mean for the people not getting married? How much of a say do they should they have? You know, what what should they expect? You know, I, I don't think you're going to like pull your wedding guests for what the menu is going to be or what songs to play. <laughs> no, no. You know, I think where she goes wrong is basically she tries to blackmail her daughter right. into being like, well, I am paying for this. Remember, 
which is funny because typically this, I feel like the situation is the other way around where the parent wants it to be at a church. The couple does not. And the parent says, well, I'm paying for a wedding. I'm not paying for a party. Right. And and that was the other thing I thought about, you know, I have not gotten engaged or married. So it struck me that isn't this something you would talk about before getting engaged? You know, I think uh, I would recommend it to anybody listening out there. Um, however, I know it's, you know, it, it can be really complicated. It's because especially, you know, it's e- it was easy for me, like in my wife, you know, I, I literally met my wife in the church we got married in. So that was not really a thing we had to think about. But I know a lot of people uh, are dating or engaged or married to people of different faiths. And so this is, uh, it's a hard question to wrestle with and think about. But I will say by the time you're, you know, getting engaged and you start that whole process, I think you definitely wanted to have at least broached this topic before. That would be, that would be my ask Zach advice if anybody were asking. But the weirdest part is uh, the opposition to wine or any alcoholic beverage at, at that the is reception. Just, that is just something I cannot understand. Like how you can like objecting to wine at a wedding reception on deeply Christian values. That was literally Jesus's first miracle was making wine for a wedding reception. Like not metaphorical wine, literal, literal wine. And so I, that I, that I can't understand at all. Yeah. No, yeah. There's no defense of mother-in-law in in this regard, (laughs) (laughs) but it's a fraught topic. It's an interesting topic. And, you know, we're looking at, you know, reminded you and I, I think that, you know, we, that's something we want to tackle more on this show. Um, so if you have, you have thoughts on that, if you have ideas on this, if you have experiences where you've had to like navigate the minefield that is wedding planning and where's the religious ceremony part going to be or not be, um, we, we'd love to hear about it. We're going to post in our Facebook group. You could, you could also shoot us an email, uh, this week and we'll read it on next week's show. It's going to be at, uh, you can email us at jesuitical at americamedia.org. Joining us from the Archdiocese of Seattle is Bishop Eusebio Elizondo. Welcome to Jesuitical, Bishop Elizondo. Thank you very much, Ashley. It's a pleasure for me. Thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to uh, reach out to all this, uh, your audience that I don't really know who they are. But anyway, I suppose that it's a widespread for the, throughout the whole United States. That's right. And the world even. So yeah, we've got people all over the place listening. And they're going to get to know you super well at the end of this conversation. Excellent. Uh, but maybe just somewhere to start, we'd like to ask every bishop that comes on this show, uh, what is a typical day like for you in your ministry? Well, I get out very early myself. I'm an early bird. And so uh, 5.30 or so, maybe sometimes even before that, I like to do exercise every day. And uh, not much because I'm 67 already, but uh, but uh, <laughs> but uh, I used to run a lot. But now I do some uh, stretch out and some abdominals and ex- exercise. Yeah, some walking and prayer, of course, and uh, half an hour or 45 minutes of adoration myself, my morning prayers, and then uh, getting ready to come to the office. <laughs> And and what happens? And what's what what happens once you get to the office? What are your uh, main duties? Main duties, yeah. Well, uh, I immediately check with my uh, executive assistant here uh, with uh, Fatima that you already met, and uh, so first of all, of course, I check immediately all the the mail that I have. That I, every day there is a bunk uh, of uh, mails, some very pleasant, some not so not so. What 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 are what are the letters usually that you get? Are are they um, 
all, all are they like all compliments, oh, no. all complaints? I wish uh, there were all like... compliments, but no. <laughs> Nowadays, you know, our our people in the United States is very outspoken and very critical, and which is good also because they are thinkers. But and of course, they are well. In, most of them are well informed of what is happening in the world and in the church and here in the archdiocese, and so they question a lot of things. Right now, for instance, they are very much involved in all the issues about the synod, of course. What is the real consultation that we are doing with the people? They are very much involved in the issues about the Native Americans, uh, burial sites and school, the parish, all parish schools that they, in Canada and the United States and all that investigation. They are very much questioning also the what is our position about the uh, communion for the politicians and especially in this case with our president being a Catholic and, and stuff like that. Of course, it's everyday, everyday issues. And, and of course, <laughs> uh, some very good also, uh, thanking us for, for the uh, beautiful statements that we do in, in every way and in, in every aspect of it, this defending the rights of every single human being and, and against abortion or against euthanasia or some other, or the or defending the dignity of the immigrants or things like that. But, um, but again, uh, all kinds, all kinds. So a good mix, yeah. 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 So, so that's a typical day. We want to talk to you about maybe a, a less typical part of your job. A few years back, you got to be a part of the kind of the canonization process. Uh, you played the role, what used to be called the devil's advocate. So yep. when, when th- someone claims that they've been healed through a miracle before that's approved, there's a really deep investigation into it. So we want to talk about your experience there. Can you tell us briefly the story of Jake Finkbonner, who's went through this healing. Yeah, uh, Jake Finkbonner belongs to a family here in the in the north of the archdiocese in Bellingham. But originally, he was born. His family was part of the Indian reservation there uh, in uh, in that area of, the, of Bellingham. And and of course, uh, his uh, dad is uh, ancestors are very much. Native Americans, and so he has blood, Native American blood on that. Anyway, to me, he was a, a little child, uh, only five year old, and, and he was a school, a Catholic school in Bellingham, and uh, he, he was playing basketball, and uh, just in one of the moves that he made with a bump with another classmate there, and he uh, fell and uh, uh, hit his lip on the base of the basketball uh, uh, net there, uh, the, the basketball pole, and uh, so uh, because it was rusty and, and all the rest of stuff, and and uh, so in, immediately, and a few minutes later, his uh, his lips were totally swollen, and his uh, his face, and and a half an hour, he was already in a tremendous high fever. And so they, he had to be taken to the hospital, not only the local hospital, because they saw that he was so much in danger with this kind of a, let's say, re- reaction so terrible that he was taken by helicopter aircraft uh, downtown Seattle to the main hospital here. And, and of course, uh, immediately they said that, well, this is a dangerous thing. This is what they so-called flesh-eating disease. In a couple of hours, he was uh, the whole uh, reaction was uh, going to through his lungs, through his brain, and and they said, well, he is not giving any responses anyway anymore, and uh, and of course he is uh, in very serious danger of dying. And and as a matter of fact, if, if a couple of hours later, they his brain was not responding at all, and and all his uh, vital signs were very very weak, and so they said. Uh, 
to the, his parents, be prepared because this kid most probably will die in a few hours. So Jake at this point is in very, very serious critical condition. Yep. Doctors are saying to the family, prepare for death. And, and, and the family starts praying or asking Kateri Tekawatha for prayers, right? So how did they get, come to know about her and what happens then? Well, as a matter of fact, as I said before, they they used to live in the Indian reservation there and the little chapel there that is a, it's a church, I mean, it's a mission is dedicated to Kachiriche Kawita and that little mission. And of course, the pastor immediately, when he heard about Jake, he invited all the parishioners there and of course the family to start praying through the intercession of Kachiriche Kawita. And, and not only that, he invited a, a religious sister from the East to bring a relic uh, of uh, Kachiriche Kawita to the parish and to the family so that they can directly ask the intercession of Kateri Chikawicha for a miracle. And in the meantime, Jake was getting worse and so uh, really seriously about to die. And so they transferred him from the main hospital here to the children's hospital that is specialized uh, here in Seattle. Very, very high tech and the best doctors are there. And the relic that they brought from the East the sister was placed in, in his pillow besides his, in, in his bed. And so that uh, that everyone will, especially his parents that were all the time there with him, were praying directly through the intercession of Kateri Chekawita. And they did. All, all, all the parishioners and the pastor and everyone was praying. And they informed us about that too. Just so for context, people who don't know who uh, Kateri is, she was a 7th century Mohawk girl. 17th century. 17th century, yep. yes. Yep. <laughs> Um, who converted to Catholicism. She died young. Um, and so there was a lot of uh, similarities, or it, it, it's understandable why why they would want to pray to her in this case. It was it was another young person, another another Native person, and she actually, her face was scarred by smallpox. Yes, and absolutely. So, and, and he was having this, this uh, terrible disease that was eating away at his face. Yep. And so, yeah, so they placed the relic on his pillow, and uh, from the stories I read, it seems like, Pretty quickly after that, the the disease just stopped advancing. The doctor said it it had been like a volcano exploding, um, and then it just stopped. Yeah, precisely, precisely. That's that's part of the the investigation that we did, and and of course it was consulting with the doctors, a real eminences in in the medicine, all of them. In fact, when I was interviewing. Bishop Tyson and myself were involved in this, but I was playing the role, as you were saying, of the devil's advocate, uh, trying to do the kind of questions that, to, let's say, to bring the best of the sciences and the best of the uh, intelligent ways of understanding the whole thing so that uh, God's uh, intervention was uh, really clear for everyone to see. And when in our consultation with the doctors, they said, there is no explanation. And, and one of them said that, uh, I'm one of the best uh, surgeons in the world, and I cannot explain how come suddenly, out of the blue, his illness uh, not only stopped, started decreasing the, the, the gravity of this, and started having a, a progress in, in, immediately. And so uh, after that, and so uh, it was uh, for him, as a, I am a scientist, and I cannot talk about miracles here. But, uh, but for me, it's something that I cannot explain. One of them is even, even a Jewish. Uh, uh, and he said, well, I'm a believer myself, but I, I'm not a Christian, but I'm a believer. And I'm a scientist at the same time. And I cannot explain this, but God's intervention, that's it. Uh, that he, this guy got better. So it sounds like the, me the, the medical community was sort of, at least, could not explain it. But I'm wondering, 
to back up a little bit, how does how did the church even decide to look into Jake's case? Because I imagine that I don't know. I actually have no idea how many people claim that certain healings that happen are are miraculous. Um, can you just shed a little insight into, at least in this case, how the church decided to get involved? Well, as I said, Father, the the, the pastor there, uh, contacted the archdiocese and told us that uh, he was asking the whole uh, members of the parish there to pray through the intercession of Kateru Chikawita. That is why we got involved in that. And of course, uh, uh, once that he was talking about the the asking everyone for a miracle. And then when the med, the doctors couldn't explain how it improved suddenly his condition, Jake's condition, we started jumping in and say, well, let us investigate if this is really a, a miracle or it's just a, the progress of the sciences, of course. And, and of course, uh, my role was exactly that, to question everyone in, in a way that it, they will uh, give me the best scientific answers or no answers so that we can say this is beyond sciences okay this is beyond explanation this is where the, the nature stopped and then supernatural is coming in did you ever feel like a uh, like a party pooper or oh, yeah. like someone oh, who yeah. is ruining the party? Yeah, oh, yeah, I imagine because everybody I'm sure is convinced this is a miracle, and yeah. you're coming in there asking asking all sorts of questions, oh, yeah. trying to poke yeah. holes. It was not a what are, it was not yeah. a, a comfortable uh, role for me, not at all. As a priest, <laughs> of course, I want to say, yeah, this is a miracle, but no. <laughs> yeah. So, so what are the questions you're asking? Well, uh, I, again, especially to the doctors, I said. Well, first to the family, I say, uh, at what moment do you start praying through the intercession of Kateri Chikawita? Uh, maybe it was already too late and she, he was already getting better. So that's not a miracle. It was already getting better thanks to the sciences. And that's it. Thanks to the uh, children's hospital resources there and the expertise of the doctors. And that's it. But no, we have to check the times and the, the moment when they brought the relic and then the people involved and the pastor involved. And, and, and precisely also, even I sat, sat down with the family and asked, were you praying through the intercession of Kacheru Chekawicha or just God, uh, generically speaking, just you know, people of faith and that's praying to God for a miracle? Or you were praying really specifically through the intercession of Kacheru Chekawicha? And, and of course, the parents were very much convinced that they know we were praying through the intercession because the pastor, our pastor, was asking us to pray through that. And because the church is dedicated to, to her. So is the is the Catholic Church interested in affirming or denying miracles that don't involve saints' causes? Because um, I can imagine, you know, if the family is just, you know, praying to God to heal this, yep. heal our son, heal our, heal our friend, and something miraculous happens, it's not like... It's not like God only intervenes when when there's a saint involved, I can imagine. Oh, absolutely not. And as a matter of fact, myself, uh, my role was, first of all, I was telling them, well, there are ordinary miracles every day. And for me as a priest, I say, well, the greatest of the miracles for us believers is the Eucharist. We believe that that's by the power of the Holy Spirit, that bread and wine is transforming to the body and, and blood of Jesus Christ. That's a uh, humongous, gigantic, I don't know how to describe it, amazing, awesome miracle that for us believers, but for the 
ordinary creation, well, then it's, uh, these other miracles are happening and we take it for granted anyway. So in the cases of, of saints and miracles, it, they tend to be medical healing types of, of miracles. Yeah. And I'm wondering, wh- why is that? Why are there not, <laughs> why aren't people praying to have their food multiplied and having saints intervene and then getting that recognized? <laughs> <It's>, it... <laughs> Uh, or my or my bank account multiplied. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, let me tell you what I answered a moment ago to one of my assistants here in, in the office. He she was saying because uh, as usual here in this time of the season, uh, this time of the year, I mean it is the season already fall and it's raining a lot and it's windy and I was going out to buy a, a sandwich and. And she said, well, it's awful outside. Let us ask the Lord to stop for, and open up the sky for a moment and you, so that you, will, you won't get wet and you will have a sunny moment for just to go to a couple of blocks to buy your sandwich. And say, that's a cheap miracle, okay? <laughs> that's a very cheap miracle. Let us ask the Lord to something do great. I mean, <laughs> the Lord doesn't get uh, involved in those little things of every day you know like multiply your bank account or or to uh, <laughs> multiply the food on our tables every day but uh, because those are ordinary that he already granted those miracles to to our minds and hearts and and labor our our daily lives he we can do that in his name all the time that he doesn't either intervene directly for that and so the greatest miracles that means stopping natural law and perfect natural law, those are when, when miracles uh, start and uh, w- what we call so miracles, the great miracles and uh, believers. And of course, that is a, a way to show the normal, ordinary human human beings that this is beyond natural, it's supernatural. And of course, that is for believers like ourselves. If you had to, if you had to guess, what percentage of miracles that are investigated end up being confirmed as legit? Uh, very few. <laughs> very, yeah, <laughs> yeah, very few. Because a lot of people claim uh, miracles when they, as I said, are very simple things that are not really miracles. Or uh, it was again the the science intervening, or the circumstances just changing, and so, or they never did the process uh, according to. The, the, what, what I tried to explain, for instance, consulting with the doctors, consulting with the times uh, uh, when it happened, and, and real intervention of uh, faith, uh, asking a particular saint or God himself to do the miracle. Many things are just uh, taken for granted, and so they don't do the process, and of course they are not counted as miracles. Have you personally ever been involved in like telling someone, no, this is this is not? Yes, yeah. Le- yeah. For instance, a couple of times it had happened here in the archdiocese. They called me for to investigate the miracle of a, a host transforming to flesh into real flesh, human flesh. A, okay, so that's a that's a non medical miracle. It was, I guess, I yeah. suppose, right? Yeah, it's not. <laughs> it's not. Absolutely not. But of course, if we, as they were saying first at all that it was transforming to blood and flesh. Of course, I had I had to take it very delicate and very uh, carefully and very devoutly. And, but at the same time, I took it to a lab, a real lab, to investigate if that is real blood or it was real flesh, human flesh, on that stain, red stain that it was in a in a host that it was forgotten in the tabernacle, and it was just fermentation. That's what it was. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Uh. So that makes me wonder 
we think of miracles as how you're describing it as, you know, science, nature can't explain it. But of course, science has, our understanding of science is constantly changing. Yep. So things that, you know, 500 years ago, no one on earth would have been able to explain. Us looking back, we will we'll be able to um, yep. in some cases. So does that mean what they thought was miraculous back then wasn't or are miracles relative to the time you're in? No, I think I think the Lord has been performing miracles according to what we can understand here and what we had as a means in the times. And so the miracles evolved, yes. Uh, that is why he gave us intelligence and science. And so going back, for instance, to the case of Jacob, for me, and I met him, uh, I don't know, six months ago again. And he's a big, tall guy, taller than me now. <laughs> and he has very little scars in his face because the doctors did uh, fantastic work in plastic surgeons there to restore or, re, I don't know, reconstruct his face. But, uh, but the most important miracle that happened there, and the doctors still today saying the same thing to, in the case of Jacob, he doesn't have any collateral damage. Not in his brain, not in his eyesight, not in his uh, speech, not in his lungs, nothing. He was perfect. And he is a very athletic and very joyful guy. Uh, now he's, uh, I don't know, 18, I think he is now, uh, something like that. And uh, he's very healthy. And so they cannot explain that. Absolutely not. I'm, I'm curious about the what effect miracles should have on our on our faith, because part of me hears whenever I hear about a medical miracle, it, it, I feel a little bit like the the other brother in the par- parable of the prodigal son. Yeah. That's sort of like God did this thing for someone else. Yep. Well, I can think of people in my life that could have used miracles, particularly in medical situations. And I, I certainly prayed, right? Yeah. But it didn't happen to me. Am I, am I just being <laughs> selfish? And uh, or how am I supposed to like think about how God acts in the world? Well, first of all, the God is God, and so we cannot control Him. <laughs> he He yeah. can do whatever He wants, and so try as I might. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, we do. We 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 try all the time. Do this and do that for me, and do that. Well, He will act according to what is uh, according to His heart. What is the best for humanity and a particular group of human beings in that particular situation, not just. Uh, uh, to show off for the world, but in a particular case, it's with a purpose, with a mission to improve the faith, not only uh, one person, but through that person to impact a group of people. In the in the case of uh, uh, Jake Fingoner, uh, for all the uh, Native Americans, that it was very powerful that they will, God had been, and of course, Jesus did that in this from the beginning, but we are slow learners. I, I always say that to myself. We humans are so slow learners that we keep on saying, oh, the miracles happen to all, only for the very uh, educated people or very strong piety, uh, pious people. And of course, Jesus said, no, go and announce the gospel to everyone and everywhere. And of course, in this case, it were Native Americans. It was powerful, a message for everyone. God is acting uh, through a, a Native American, Kacheri Chikawita, and uh, which herself suffered this kind of a, a pox, smallpox, or a, and it was a, a healed even on that. But also a convert from the old faith to a powerful unity with Jesus Christ, and so it's in impacting. Thousands and thousands of people, uh, Native Americans, and through them, of course, the Catholic Church. That's a, that's a powerful thing for us as low learners to discover that God, work, God works 
whatever and however and uh, in any way that he wants to surprise us, to perfect our unity with him. Yeah. So you're, you're talking about how Jake's individual miracle had these ripple effects throughout the community. Yeah. And of course, in Jesus's own time, he he didn't heal everyone. He, that We have specific stories of, yeah. of healings. And so I'm wondering... How how you interpret those? Are they are they kind of both miracles and supposed to be parables in a way that teach us something about what it means to be or to live in the kingdom of God? I'm wondering because Jesus does say things like you know blessed you, you know you believe because you've seen but blessed are those that believe without seeing too. Yeah, well there there are different kind of miracles that you were talking about uh, to 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 help us to Jesus was helping some people to understand. That everyone, for instance, is, is my brother and my sister, and suddenly that happens. That's a miracle, but it's not a physical miracle. It's a it's an in, internal miracle to discover that wow, another human being has also been loved by God as much as I am. And in his parables, for instance, not only the the prodigal son, but in the Samaritan, for instance, and 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 all his teachings and the uh, that constantly he was saying the same thing. You no, know, God calls all of us and loves all of us. It is not according to your own merits, but it's God's love that he wants to, uh, again, to show his love for everyone. And of course, to keep on uh, showing everyone that he's very present in all the little things and big things of our uh, humanity. And for Catholics too, I, I, I try to remind people sometimes that like, Catholics are not obliged to believe in every, th- every miracle that <laughs> no, right, no. Is, is confirmed, yeah. right? There, there's nothing about, Jake in the in, in the creed. No, um, not absolutely. That's yeah. that's true. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yes, yeah. The okay. only things that we are obliged to believe is the the uh, affirmations in the creed. You are right. Yes. Yeah, but so what has what has the impact been on your faith of of being in, involved with a case like Jake's and seeing something one of these great miracles beyond beyond the everyday miracle of of being alive? For me, it was a a, a shot in the arm, as we say, or a shot in the soul. Uh, to see this little kid, because he was only five, and uh, not even five, I think, I, as far as I remember, he was turning five in that moment. And when we were asking him about when he started recovering and he was uh, finally conscious, and we were asking him how he felt uh, in that moment, he was always saying, first of all, he was a very joyful guy all the time, smiling all the time. And he said, and when we asked him, were you afraid of dying? And he said, no. I was just feeling that God was with me and, and that I was in good hands. And, and of course, I was at peace all the time. For a little kid to say those things, it was like, oh, this is uh, really too much for me. And the, yeah, it's, it's a, a leap of faith that is I didn't expect on, on a little kid. And, and he was spontaneously saying those things, like natural. He was not acting out or just making a pose or something. No, he was just like, yeah, I was not afraid. I was just like, I knew that God loves me and and I was in good hands. Bishop, thank you so much for sharing your experience with us and and our audience. And we have one final question for you that we ask everybody that comes on this show. Uh, Particularly apt today. (laughs) Yes, yeah. If you could could canonize someone, uh, living or dead, Catholic or not, fictional or real, with miracles or without, <laughs> who would it be and why? <laughs> That's a very good one. I would canonize people like like Mahama Gandhi, for instance, 
an incredible human being that uh, learned through his spirituality, through his soul, that everyone deserves the same kind of dignity, every single person, and without ever lifting his fist or a gun or anything to hurt anybody else, free the whole country from the, the domination of the empire back on those days, the British Empire. And he was always inviting everyone to love each other, even among their own people, the Hindus and the Muslims, to put peace among them. And that, for me, that was like, wow, that's a, that's a, a holy man. To me, I'm, I'm sure that he's in heaven. Uh, absolutely. And, and we will meet him there. Uh, people like that, sure. Um, besides great examples like we have lately, Teresa Calcutta, for instance, or, or I don't know, Dorothy Day, or uh, I don't know, so many other great people that have been around us in, in many ways, Oscar Romero and many others and in every single part of the world. But also, again, in this case, a non-Catholic and uh, but not even Christian. Not even okay, Christian. I I think you're the first bishop to canonize a non-Catholic on the show, yeah. which I feel like, yeah, it, there, no, there's no stakes the here. Interfaith, yeah, outreach. And there, and <laughs> as far as I can tell, the Vatican's not listening to the show yet. So, um. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and again, however, uh, it's not up to me to officially canonize, but I, yeah, to me, those are great examples of human beings that are in heaven. Absolutely. All right. All right. right. St. Gandhi. Bishop, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to come on our show. We really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank thank you. you. And Zach, and of course, all of you to to do this. And of course, uh, I'm sure that uh, uh, you are evangelizing a lot of people through this. And of course, I admire very much St. Ignatius. And of course, nowadays, more than Mm -hmm. ever, more than ever, Pope Francis, that is a Jesuit us all. (laughs) <laughs> That's right. That's with the company line right now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> awesome. So thank you. All Thanks right. again. Thank you, Bishop. God bless you. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. Bye bye. It's been around for days now. You carry all that weight. I wish that I could help you before it is too late. If you're enjoying today's podcast, please join Father James Martin and Jamie Marisotis for a discussion on human work, spirituality, and empathy during their virtual live event, Finding Spiritual Meaning in Human Work, on February 14th. Sign up at luminafoundation.org slash events. And now it's time for some housekeeping. What do we have this week, Zach? Wanted to shout out some new Patreon supporters. Uh, Thank you so much this week to James M. Gomez and Felipe Takla, who is writing us from Brazil. Um, Thank you to both of you and to all of our Patreon supporters. Uh, You guys help make this show happen. We can't do it without you. Um, If you want to join them and get access to um, our bonus episodes, uh, exclusive posts written by Ashley and I, you know, advanced notice on things like our pilgrimage to Italy and other events, definitely head over to patreon.com slash America media to, to join James and Felipe again, that's patreon.com slash America media. And now it's time for as one friend speaks to another, the part of our show where we talk about where we're finding God in our lives. You're up this week, Zach. 
Yes, I am. I got some uh, evidence this week that I am. Uh, this may, may may surprise you, but uh, still growing up, and I'm still maturing. Um, I'm just kidding. It's I feel like that's I make that clear every every day. But this week, it was I, I learned it because I had this we had the situation where uh, in our jobs we we have a bunch of our work sort of reviewed and judged uh, by a bunch of other people in the in the industry, and you know I could as soon as I started looking at some of this, I could feel this. Uh, voice in in my head that is the voice of the evil spirit that says you've done nothing creative in the past year you are not doing enough um you are not good at your career you should probably quit and go leave you know it which in the past i've had this thought and it it used to send me into this total tailspin like like totally doubting my vocation like this existential like crisis um that i mean lasted like approximately like a couple days. Um, but this time you know, I was able to like recognize it for what it was. It's like, okay, I'm, I, ha- I have these thoughts. I don't need to pay attention to that because uh, it's not true. And I just moved on with my day. That was the most remarkable thing I thought uh, because it, as I said, it, like, you know, when I was 22, 23, 24, like those are that, that type of thing. Um, you know, this was a work situation, but it's, it's also happened in like you know, uh, relationships with other people. Uh, in, in my romantic relationships, that that's the type of thing that would have just like sent me over the edge and just like totally into a, a, a crisis. So you're telling me imposters syndrome only lasts about five or six years before you can get over it. <laughs> yeah. Or it just, you know, or it just like creeps up and then you can, and then it's just gone. It's, yeah, it's it, no. it, it shows up and then, it, and then you move over it. It's, it's not a problem. Yeah, no, it's funny. I had a kind of similar experience this week. A um, An acquaintance of a good friend emailed me. Uh, she's graduating from college this spring. She goes to a Catholic school and she's interested in getting involved in journalism. So she, you know, was just giving me an email to see if I'd be willing to talk to her about uh, my career path and advice. And similarly, if someone, if I'd gotten this email, you know, three years ago, five years ago, one year ago, <laughs> I think my... <laughs> My reaction would have been like, what do I have to teach this person? Like, I, I don't know how I got here. It seems like a complete fluke. Um, but instead of instead of that being my automatic reaction, I, you know, my first thought was like, oh, yeah, I probably I, I could give her some advice. And even if, you know, she can't replicate my path, there might be some wisdom that she can take from it. And yeah, that that felt like a, a step in uh more matured and confident direction for myself. Yeah, I was thinking about this a little bit uh, more, and I was wondering if I was like, okay, what makes this like a spiritual lesson and not just like, <laughs> I don't know, just like a general part of growing up? Um, I, I guess like, I will say just like growing up is a spiritual thing, A. But B, like, um, I think particularly when it's attached to things like that you consider your vocation, right? Like, Like, I think you and I both would, you know, on good days, say we, we work in ministry. Um, and so I think that, uh, is particularly susceptible to like the, these doubts and attacks. Um, and it requires careful discernment to, you know, suss, suss this stuff out. I came away with some new respect this week for all the people that listen to all of my like craziness and, uh, moody mood swings. And, um, yeah, like college campus ministers, they must be like, uh, 
Uh, <laughs> our producer Sebastian just said Sebastian. Yeah, Sebastian, <laughs> college campus ministers, all, all you know, uh, Father Eric. Father Eric, uh, yep. Yeah, all the people that listen to me and work with young people, I think the world of you. Yeah. So I guess Which is closing... not to say we've we've figured it all out yet. Yeah, no. Thirty five year old Ashley is gonna have a lot to tell me, I hope, because <laughs> if not, that means I've stopped growing. <laughs> yeah. Um so as a closing thought, something to think about, pray about this week. Uh is there been a recent moment where you've been reminded that, you know, you're, you're still growing up. Uh, you're still growing in your faith and maturity and wisdom and years. Um, sit with that. Uh, pray with that. I, Cause I, I would give gratitude for it because I think that growth is a good thing. All right. I will get us out of here. Jesuitical is produced by Sebastian Gomes with production assistance from Kevin Jackson and Kira Hanlon. Our sound engineer is Kevin Christopher Robles. Faith formation provided by Father Eric Sundra. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Jesuitical is a production of American Media and is recorded in the William J. Loshert Studio in New York City. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week.